According to Lanny Davis, former special counsel to President Clinton and longtime Democratic consultant, Barack Obama will be considered one of history's great presidents. What makes Obama so spectacular? Well, according to Davis, to be a great president requires a combination of four factors. First, unique circumstances making a major impact on the nation's history, like Washington and Jefferson as framers and setting important precedents for the presidency for future generations. Second, successfully addressing one or more major national crises, Lincoln with the Civil War or FDR with World War II. Third, having significant positive impacts on economic and social changes or in foreign policy. And fourth, enhancing the powers and effectiveness of the presidency and the future of their political parties. Davis then goes ahead and ranks his top-tier presidents. He says those are Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Teddy, and FDR. And he lists his second-tier presidents, Monroe, Polk, McKinley, Wilson, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Reagan, Clinton. So, where does Obama stack up in all of this? According to Davis, quote, there is little doubt that future historians will rank him high in this second tier. What were Obama's accomplishments? Obamacare, quote, digging the country out of an economic Great Recession and his election as the first black president. That's the whole thing. And that's pretty weak. So here's where Obama actually stacks up on these four factors. First, unique circumstances. Obama did face a severe economic downturn when he assumed office. That is not that rare in American history. According to 247wallstreet.com, America has had either depressions or recessions. In 1797 under Adams, 1807 under Jefferson, 1815 to 1821 under Madison and Monroe, 1837 under Van Buren, 1857 under Buchanan, 1873 under Grant, 1893 under Cleveland, 1907 under Teddy, 1920 and 21 under, under Harding, the Great Depression under Hoover and FDR, 1973 under Nixon, and the Carter years and early Reagan years. Which leaves aside the stock market crashes under Reagan, the mild economic downturn under George H.W. Bush, and the bursting of the internet bubble under Bill Clinton. So, the question isn't, did he actually experience a downturn? It's what he did with that. He proceeded to lead, Obama did, one of the worst recoveries in American history. Second, successfully addressing one or more national crises. This is the second criteria. Davis gives Obama credit for addressing the Great Recession, although his recovery was tepid at best, actually the worst since the Great Depression. Average annual growth has been the weakest since 1949, at just 2.1% growth per year. The expansion has been long, but it's been seriously underproductive. Under, on foreign policy, Obama has exacerbated national crises surrounding terror, presided over a massive increase in the number of terror attacks on American soil. He's also presided over the collapse of race relations in the United States. When he took office, two out of three Americans thought race relations were good. He leaves office with nearly two in three Americans thinking precisely the reverse. Third, a good president has significant impacts on domestic or foreign policy. Obama's biggest domestic policy achievement, Obamacare, has increased costs and premiums, thrown Americans off their preferred insurance plans, and separated them from their doctors, all while overburdening medical care providers and placing insurance companies under the financial gun. It will be repealed as soon as Obama's gone. His immigration policy has left millions of illegal immigrants adrift. His foreign policy has been a series of appeasements and blunders, resulting in the rise of ISIS, a genocide in Syria, the unilateral surrender of Iraq, the incompetent prosecution of the war in Afghanistan, the regional empowerment and global legitimization of the Iranian terror regime, the creation of a dictatorship in Turkey, the empowerment of a dictatorship in Russia, the expansion of Chinese power. He's weakened American allies all around the globe. Fourth, Fourth factor, enhancing the future of the presidency and his political party. The presidency is more powerful now than it was under Obama's predecessors, but that's not a particularly good measure of greatness since he'll be handing over that power to Donald Trump. And Obama has devastated his political party. He's lost nearly a thousand seats across the country for his party. His party controls just 18 governorships. He's lost the Senate. He's lost the House. He's lost the White House. The Democrats are in the weakest position they've occupied since 1920 on the state level. And no, Barack Obama doesn't just get extra credit because he's black. So, 
Where does Obama stack up historically? It's actually kind of rare that historians rank two-term presidents among the nation's worst. The only two-term president often included in that list is W, and that's largely due to the economic collapse of 2007-2008. If not for that, he'd probably be somewhere in the middle. In all likelihood, Obama will rank slightly above Jimmy Carter, but below Richard Nixon. Historians will probably place him above George W, but well below Bill Clinton or even LBJ. He'll rank as a rotten president, not the worst ever, but certainly not among the best. Which is fitting. In the end, Obama was kind of forgettable. He was a forgettable president domestically. He was a disastrous term. He's a disastrous president in terms of foreign policy. History is not going to treat him kindly. He'll fade into obscurity rather than growing into historical prominence, which actually is probably his worst nightmare. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So many feelings. Ah, Obama is finally leaving. Donald Trump is becoming president. So much confusion. So much chaos, so much excitement, so much to talk about. But first, we have to thank our sponsor, Wink. So, if all of this makes you want to drink, if the, all of the, <laughs> if you just look at the world and you think, boy, I could use a nice glass of wine, either you're really happy about what's going on and really upset or really confused, well, Wink can make that happen for you with the best wine available on the market. The, the wonderful thing about Wink is what they, you go to their, their website over at wink.com. It's W-I-N-C, trywink.com, trywinc.com slash Ben. And what's great about them is that you go there, and if you don't know anything about wine, you can type in, they have a little survey of kind of what tastes you like, what foods you like, and then it recommends a wine to you. The wines are cheap. The wines are really, really good. Everybody in the office has tried them, which is why the production quality has suffered on days. We have wine tastings here at the office because they all get drunk and they're more useless than usual. But wink.com brings it to you. And again, if you don't know what bottle of wine bring to a party or you're just looking for a bottle of wine with your dinner and you don't know anything about wine and you're looking for a solid wine at a really great price then trywink.com is where you need to go trywink.com they have 100 satisfaction guarantee so if you don't like the bottle they send you they will replace it with a bottle you love no questions asked and of course you don't just get sent random bottles it's a personalized wine membership that recommend recommends wine specifically for you based on the results of your palate profile. So go to trywink.com slash Ben right now. You get $20 off if you use the slash Ben, and they will even cover the shipping. So you get fine wine personalized to you at trywink.com slash Ben. And if you're ready to celebrate the inauguration or you're ready to lament the inauguration or you're ready to just drink, trywink.com slash Ben is the place to go. Uh, Great company, winc.com, trywink.com slash Ben. Okay, so as I say, lots of feelings. First, just joy that Barack Obama's leaving. Like, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Barack Obama has been uh, a, a barnacle on the ass of the United States for eight years. He's been awful. <laughs> He's been just an, an abscess in terms of politics for the entirety of his term, and it is great to see him leave. I am very, very happy about that. And we'll go through his final press conference and savor every last minute of angst and, and upset that, 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 that Barack Obama can leverage. Uh, first, I do have to note, Donald Trump, Today, he's headed to Washington, D.C. to prepare for the inauguration, which happens tomorrow. This time tomorrow, if you're listening right now, by this time tomorrow, Donald Trump will be not president-elect. He'll be president of the United States. And there's pictures of him getting off the military jet with Melania and saluting the troops, which is nice uh, because you, you feel like he actually likes the troops as opposed to the president we currently have in office. I will say this. If you're watching Donald Trump, the guy from The Apprentice, become president of the United States, and you don't feel at least a little bit of trepidation about that, it's because you're not watching closely enough. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about what we can expect from Trump and what our hopes should be and what we should actually look for from Donald Trump. I will just say this in summary. Here is how I'm feeling about Donald Trump taking office tomorrow in one 
Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that we can be, as I like to say, optimistically skeptical. Uh, we, we should we should be skeptical of every. We listen. I, I've been very skeptical. I was skeptical of Bush. I'm very. I was very skeptical of Obama. I'm be skeptical of Trump. I'm skeptical of all politicians because politicians are in the business of lying to you for money. That's what they do for a living. So if you trust Donald Trump, uh, let me just recommend to you that Donald Trump is again a politician. He shifted his positions a lot. Hold his feet to the fire, but we'll get to that in just a second. First, we have to celebrate because it's a day of celebration. Today is Barack Obama's final day in office. Yay! Woo! Very, very exciting stuff. Barack Obama has been a disastrous president of the United States. What's amazing is watching as Democrats struggle with the CNN ran a story desperately hoping that Donald Trump would actually be assassinated, really, um, because they hope that if he were assassinated and the rest of the cabinet that Trump has picked were assassinated, they haven't actually been voted on yet. So there's nobody in the cabinet yet. If you assassinate Trump and you assassinate Pence, then right now, as it goes, Barack Obama remains, he's still the president today. So if you killed Trump and Pence today, this is seriously what CNN reported. Here is what the CNN report looked like. And while officials stress there's no specific, credible threat to this inauguration, tonight, due to a quirk in America's rules for succession, questions remain about just who would be in charge if an attack hit the incoming president, vice president, and congressional leaders just as the transfer of power is underway. Here you have a very confusing line of succession. There. According to the Constitution, if the president and vice president are killed or incapacitated, next in line is the House Speaker, then the president pro tempore of the Senate. But what if something happened to them at the inauguration, too? After that, it goes down the list of cabinet secretaries, starting with Secretary of State. On the day of the inauguration, as a precaution, a cabinet secretary called the designated presidential successor will not attend the inauguration, ready to step in if something happens. But it won't be a Trump cabinet secretary, since none of them have been confirmed yet. It will be an Obama appointee. If, if, uh, so if Obama and Biden were killed, and then if Trump and Pence were killed before the inauguration, <laughs> it would have to happen before the inauguration, right? If, if They're basically saying, well, you know what could happen, theoretically? What if Trump and Pence died and Obama and Biden died? John Kerry would become president. I mean, this is like, this is insanity. So they're now, they're now living in, in this crazy fantasy world. And let's face it, okay, everyone's in some sort of bizarre fever dream here because there was a story today that Donald Trump at the inauguration might dance with Caitlyn Jenner. Okay, I'm just going to say, I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't know what's happening. If that actually happens, well, I guess that would be kind of a fitting capstone to 2016 when nothing made any sense and we're pretty much living inside God's burp right now. But I, I, but let's just focus for a second. Instead of getting into the Trump stuff, which is a lot of fun, let's focus on something else fun, which is Barack Obama leaving. So Obama's preparing to get out. Good. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. And he gives this press conference yesterday. And the final presser is just the press licking him. I mean, it's just the press doing its best to give him that final send-off he's been waiting for, give him that happy ending. So here is Barack Obama dealing with the press and spilling his usual nonsense. So he says that he's talking about how Republicans are undermining the legitimacy of the republic with their concerns over voter fraud. Here's what Obama had to say about that. We are the only country in the advanced world that makes it harder to vote rather than easier. And that dates back. there's There's an ugly history to that that we should not be shy about talking about. Voting rights? I'm, yes, I'm talking about voting rights. The, the, the reason that we are the only country among advanced democracies that makes it harder to vote but is... So, so, so President Obama on his way out, he's still riffing, he's still riffing on Jim Crow, which ended in the 1960s. 
and uh, in talking about how voting rights are being impinged. He still cannot name a single instance in which a black person has been turned away from the polls illegitimately. He still can't name a single instance of that across the country. So while the left claims that voter fraud has never happened and will never happen without any evidence, they also claim that, that there's an attempt, a market attempt, to get black people to stop voting, which, again, has no evidence to support it. But he's not done there. Barack Obama is asked specifically about Julian Assange because yesterday he released Chelsea Manning, the, the WikiLeaks traitor. And so he's asked about Julian Assange, and here was Obama's answer about Assange. Um, I don't pay a lot of attention to Mr. Assange's tweets, so that wasn't a consideration uh, in this instance. And I refer you to the Justice Department uh, for... Uh, any criminal investigations, indictments, extradition issues uh, that may come up. doesn't pay any attention to Assange's tweets, except for the fact that he thinks that WikiLeaks affected the election, and Julian Assange is the head of WikiLeaks, so there's that as well. Obama also couldn't leave without riffing on race and talking about how America's racially divided. It's more racially divided than when he took office because he blew his opportunity as the first black president to bring everybody together, instead using race baiting as a political tool and tactic. Here's Barack Obama on race relations as he leaves. And, uh, and by the way, it's no longer a black and white issue alone. You got Hispanic folks, and you got Asian folks, and you, you know, this is not just uh, you know the, the, the same old battles. Uh, we we got this this uh, stew that's bubbling up of people from everywhere. Oh, got a stew, lots of people. It's not very tasty. This stew, because I'm not going to be there to spice it. The stew. Again, he's now trying to make race relations more complicated on his way out, just as he has during his administration. He also defended his commutation of Chelsea Manning's prison sentence, uh, his his decision to free the the person who is responsible for leaking hundreds of thousands of classified documents to WikiLeaks, which resulted in the endangerment of Americans, uh, American soldiers and American allies. Here's Obama defending that yesterday. First of all, let's be clear, Chelsea Manning has served a tough prison sentence. Uh, so the notion that uh, the average person who was thinking about disclosing uh, vital classified information would think that it goes unpunished, uh, uh, I don't think would get that impression from the sentence uh, that Chelsea Manning has served. Uh, it has been my view that given she went to trial, that due process uh, was carried out, that she took responsibility for her crime, that the that she received was uh, very disproportional, disproportionate relative to what uh, other leakers had received. Okay, so we can stop it there. Get the F out, dude. I mean, when you're talking about Chelsea Manning having served this really, really harsh sentence, it was a 35-year sentence. Chelsea Manning served seven to eight years and was given hormone treatments by the federal government because Chelsea Manning thinks he is a woman. Barack Obama then frees Chelsea Manning, and we're supposed to believe that that doesn't send a signal to leakers that you're basically going to get away with it? The, the, the most laugh-worthy line of all of this, though, was when Barack Obama starts talking to the press, because this is just, this is just, if, if you don't spit your coffee listening to this line, it's only because you're not drinking coffee. Here's Obama. You're not supposed to be syncophants. You're supposed to be skeptics. You're supposed to ask me tough questions. You're not supposed to be complimentary. 
but you're supposed to cast a critical eye on folks who hold enormous power and make sure that we are accountable to the people who sent us here. And you have done that. And you have uh, done it, for the most part, uh, in ways that uh, I could appreciate for fairness, even if I didn't always agree with your conclusions. Um, and having you in this building uh, has made this place work better. It uh, okay, the press has treated Obama with kid gloves the entirety of his presidency, and the press has been very, very kind to him. Even as he's leaving, all of these major outlets are putting out tributes to him Picture, your favorite pictures of Barack Obama. Actually, my favorite picture of Barack Obama has yet to be taken. It's the one of him leaving. But they, but they say that they hear all the pictures of him and his beautiful family. Here are all the great moments that you don't remember from Barack Obama's presidency. Here's how sad we are. BuzzFeed did this. They did a whole thing about how sad they were that Barack Obama was leaving. And then he says the press has just been really tough on him. No, this is just an excuse for him to say that the press should be tough on Trump. And they will be tough on Trump. In fact, they'll be crazy about Trump. So this is a pretty nutty story from today. The Washington Post ran a story about Sonny Perdue. Uh, and this story about Sonny Perdue, he's the, the new pick for, for agriculture secretary under Trump. This pick, the, and here was the headline the Washington Post ran. Sonny Perdue's a former two-term governor of Georgia. Here was the, the headline from the Washington Post. Quote, Trump picks former Georgia governor Sonny Perdue, who once led a prayer for rain for agriculture secretary. I think it's 21 here, if you want to see that headline. Uh, it's, it's, so the headline here is, is that here, here it is. This is you can see it right there on the bottom. Trump picks former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue, who once led a prayer for rain for Agriculture Secretary, not two-term Georgia Governor, first Georgia Republican Governor in 130 years. No, the guy who led a prayer for rain, because that's how much the press hates conservatives, hates Republicans, hates religious people. That's how the press is going to treat Trump. But the way that they treated Obama was just with kid gloves. By the way, it really is quite disgusting. The, the, the press does not understand why anyone would pray for rain. Every major religion has, people, has, has times when you pray for, for weather events. That doesn't mean that you're going to get them, by the way, but the left doesn't understand how prayer works, and so they scorn all of this. And that's one of the reasons why Trump is going to be inaugurated as president tomorrow is specifically because of all of this. So Barack Obama's leaving. I don't actually want to waste more time talking. I had all the, we cut a bunch of clips and then I realized that I'm bored with him and I'm just excited to see him leave. So he's actually, he'll be going, thank God. But the, the Democrats are not going to be going. And the Democrats are going to continue to push forward a narrative that really is counterproductive. Bernie Sanders, I think, led this one off and then we'll, and then we'll have to break. Bernie Sanders led this one off. He, he was questioning the uh, Tom Price, the Health and Human Services Secretary, potential secretary, listen to what Bernie Sanders has to say. If this is the new Democratic tack, it's no wonder they're losing elections in landslides across the country. The United States of America is the only major country on earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right. Canada does it. Every major country in Europe does it. Do you believe that health care is a right of all Americans, whether they're rich or they're poor, should people, because they are Americans, be able to go to the doctor when they need to, be able to go into a hospital because they are Americans? Yes, we're a compassionate society. No, we're uh, not a compassionate society. In terms of our relationship to poor and working people, our record is worse than virtually any other country on earth. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any other major country on earth, and half of our senior older workers have nothing set aside for retirement. So I don't think compared to other countries, we are particularly compassionate. But my question is, in Canada, in other countries, all people 
have the right to get health care. Do you believe we should move in that direction? If you want to talk about other health countries' health care systems, there are consequences to the decisions that they've made, just as there are consequences to the decisions that we've made. I believe and I look forward to working with you to make certain that every single American has access to the highest quality care and coverage that is possible. Has access to does not mean that they are guaranteed health care. I have access to buying a $10 million home. I don't have the money to do that. And that's why the, the, we, we, we believe it's appropriate to put in place a system that gives every person the financial feasibility to be able to purchase the coverage that they want for themselves and for their family. Let me stop Again, there. But the part that's really telling here is where Bernie Sanders just lashes out. No, we are not a compassionate society. Sure, we're compassionate enough to put me in the Senate for a thousand terms, even though I'm 1,000 years old and completely senile and have never done anything useful in my entire life. Sure, you give me a pudding cup every so often and tell me to stand in the closet. Sure, you do that. But, it, but we're not a compassionate society. Okay, that's, that's such utter nonsense. America is by far the most generous society on the face of the earth. Americans outdonate Britain and Canada 2 to 1, nations like Italy and Germany 20 to 1, according to the Almanac of American Philanthropy. Every single income class, except those earning less than $25,000, more than half of the people in that income class in the United States donate to charity. That top 1% that Bernie Sanders loves to hate, they give one-third of all charity given in the United States. The wealthiest 1.4% of Americans are responsible for 86% of all charitable donations made at death. More Americans give charity than vote for president of the United States. As far as are we a compassionate society? America's growing economy, our, our, our blockbuster economy, has made the world rich. Okay, we have sliced global extreme poverty in half in the last 25 years thanks to the American economy. We've freed people all over the world. We've sacrificed American lives, hundreds of thousands of American lives, to free Japan, France, Norway, Austria, Greece, Denmark, Korea, Germany, Poland, Hungary, Bulgar Bulgaria, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, Germany itself. Bernie Sanders, by the way, he spent that time making friends with communists in Nicaragua. By the way, as far as poverty in the United States, here's Pew Research from last year on poverty in the United States. The U.S. stands head and shoulders above the rest of the world. More than half of Americans were high income by the global standard. Another 32% were upper middle income. In other words, almost 9 in 10 Americans had a standard of living that was above the global middle income standard. How about the American poor? Are they really hard off? Are they having a hard time? Certainly not compared to global standards, but not even according to basic standards of what you would consider super poor. Some 96% of poor parents in the United States report their children were never hungry at any time in the prior year. A poor child in the United States is more likely to have cable TV, a computer, a widescreen plasma TV, an Xbox, or a TiVo in their home than to be hungry. Poor Americans have more living space in their homes than the average non-poor Swede, Frenchman, or German, according to the Heritage Foundation. And then you heard Sanders say that our old people, they don't have savings. One of the reasons they don't have a lot of savings is because they have Social Security. People don't save because they think Social Security is their savings plan. The fact is, according to Andrew Biggs and Sylvester Schreiber in the Wall Street Journal, despite a supposedly stingy Social Security program and ineffective retirement savings vehicles, the average U.S. retiree has an income equal to 92% of the average American income, handily outpacing the Scandinavian countries, 81%, Germany, 85%, Belgium, 77%, and many others. And by the way, that's more money since our average income is actually higher than the average income in those other countries. It's also worth noting, again, that Social Security eats up a huge chunk of our budget. But if this is the, the play that Democrats are going to make, if this is the way that they're going to campaign from here on in, that Americans are stingy and terrible, it's no wonder that Donald Trump is going to become president tomorrow. 
And Donald Trump should have an easy ride of it if this is the direction in which Democrats and the left are going to move. Now, we have to break here, but we have much more to discuss. I want to talk about what we can expect from the incoming Trump administration, you know, how we should treat the incoming Trump administration. Plus, we have the mailbag coming as well. So we'll talk about all of that. But to do that, you have to go to dailywire.com and subscribe if you want to watch live right now. Eight bucks a month will get you a subscription to dailywire.com. You get an annual subscription. You still get a free signed copy of my book, True Allegiance, my novel, True Allegiance. Uh, we have some other big goodies coming out in the very near future, which I'm very excited to announce in the next couple of weeks. And uh, that's only for subscribers. So go to dailywire.com. You can become part of the mailbag, which means we'll take live questions today on the mailbag from our subscribers at dailywire.com. So go and check it out there. Or you can listen to us later. Later at iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure that you leave a review and subscribe at iTunes and SoundCloud. We are the largest conservative podcast in the United States. So in the face of Barack Obama leaving and in the face of Donald Trump taking office, Democrats are in a sheer state of panic. They're in a sheer state of panic, and they're getting more and more extreme, which is incredible because they're sort of running out of extremities to, to, to plumb. Joe Biden, the current vice president, the outgoing vice president of the United States, suddenly he has realized that the progressive international order is under attack, not because Obama's president, but because Trump won. But the greatest threat on this front springs from the distinct illiberal and external actors who equate their success with fracturing the liberal international order. Simply put, Mr. Putin has a different vision of the future, one in which Russia is... Uh, is pursuing across the board. It seeks to return to a world Joe Biden has realized that Russia is terrible. So they spent eight years pretending Russia's fine and ripping Mitt Romney for saying Russia was, was dangerous. And now they've realized Russia's terrible just in time for Donald Trump to jump in. Chuck Schumer is doing the same thing. He says, ah, terrible Trump trying to ram through his nominees this way. How could Donald Trump try to ram through his nominees this way? Well, maybe it's because you're trying to hold up his nominees in a relatively unprecedented way. These past two weeks... We have seen repeated efforts from the Trump transition, aided and abetted by Senate Republicans, to jam through nominees in a way that hides their views from the American people. A senator and two members of the House were forced to wait until the end of the second day of Senator Sessions' hearing before they could be heard. Senator Barrasso is keeping the public out of Mr. Pruitt's hearing, making seven seats available in the whole hearing room. Senate Democrats' requests for outside witnesses for the Puzder, Price, Mnuchin, and DeVos hearings were denied. Mr. Ross's OGE paperwork was submitted just over complain, a day complain, before... Complain, this is their strategy, complain about how crazy Trump is. And then the final Democratic strategy, of course, is to play the race card. So Mark Lamont Hill, the guy who a couple of days ago said that all of these black folks meeting with Donald Trump were just mediocre Negroes. He's now positing that there was some sort of conspiracy at Fox News. He was a contributor at Fox News for years, and uh, he tells the story of how the pastries were racist at Fox News. Serious. Kind of hard to hear him, but the story is basically that Fox News. Let me stop there because the, the audio isn't the quality isn't that great. But but basically, Mark Lamont Hill makes the case that when he was at Fox News, they wouldn't allow him at any high level meetings, and they would send him to the black people floor for pastries. That's that was basically his accusation. Michael Eric Dyson, who was on with me on Fox News a couple of nights ago, he is also pushing this notion that America is facing an upsurge in racism because there's a history of police terrorizing black people. 
But take those three, color neutral and ISIS. Uh, many African-American people said, look, we were introduced to terror long before 9-11. The vicious police forces of America that have victimized us and the way in which white supremacy operated. But Number false two, equivalency between having uh, Islamic extremists wanting to eradicate the American well, way of life look, to police versus citizens. Look at this. Rudy Giuliani, and I debated him on Meet the Press, said, look, you people focus on police killings of black people when that's a small percentage of what happens. Debate over when he said you people? <laughs> Did he say, look, most, he said, however, of the killings are done by black uh, people against black people. Right. Well, 94, 93% of black people who are killed are killed by black people, but 84% of white people who are killed are killed by white people. But let's go on. Mm -hmm. Let's take his logic to the extreme here. If that's the case, how many people have died from terror in America in the last 10 years? Not many. I don't know, maybe 100? If this is Not the way many. that they're going to argue... If the way they're going to argue is that police officers in the United States are equivalent to Islamic terrorists, they're going to continue to lose. They're going to continue to lose. So all of this says that the left is in complete disarray, and Barack Obama has been a big part of that. So thank you to President Obama for placing the left in the crosshairs of the American people. Thank you to Barack Obama for demonstrating that the left cannot be trusted with power. Thank you for devastating your party down ballot. Thank you for taking them out of power in the Senate. Thank you for taking them out of power in, in the House. Thank you for taking them out of power in the White House. Thank you, Barack Obama, for making America a better place by being such a crappy president and being such a, a lacking human being, particularly when it comes to dividing Americans on the basis of race. But this brings us to the second question. And the second question is, again, Donald Trump is about to become president. How should we feel about this? Now, I already summarized my feelings, but I feel like now is an appropriate time to summarize my feelings again. Here again are my feelings about what's about to happen with Donald Trump taking office. Yeah, yeah. For those who can't see, it's Kanye West smiling and then realizing something terrible. So is it going to be something terrible or is it going to be something not terrible? We have no idea. Hey, here is the real answer. Anybody who pretends they know that Trump's going to be great is full of crap. Anybody who pretends they know he's going to be awful is full of crap. We don't know. Nobody knows. Here are the things that we do know. We know that Donald Trump is going to continue to be Donald Trump. And that's good and that's bad. And that's, that's good and that's bad. I'll give you an example. So yesterday, Donald Trump, he was talking about the replacement for Obamacare, and here's what he had to say about his replacement for Obamacare. So, and we're going to have, you know, we have to cover people that can't afford it. And that's what I'm talking about. And we'll probably have block grants of Medicaid back into the states, and we'll do things because there are people that can't afford it. And nobody's going to be dying on the streets with a President Trump. We want to take care of everybody. A lot of people are just worried how you're going to pay for it if you insure everyone. Well, you watch. We're going to get private insurance companies to take care of a lot of the people that can afford it. That's going to take a tremendous burden off, and they're going to be able to have plans that are great plans. So that's very important. Okay, so that's exactly Obamacare. We're going to force private insurance to take people who they don't want to take, and we're going to give block grants to, to the states through Medicaid. That, that's exactly the Obamacare in exchanges. That's exactly what they are. So there's two ways to read this, and this is the thing about Trump. You can read this as Trump is just saying stuff and he doesn't know what he's talking about and he goes on TV and he says things and then the people who make policy are Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And so you look at his cabinet and you say he's made a lot of really good cabinet picks. Scott Pruitt at the EPA, Tom Price at HHS, Betsy DeVos at Education, Rick Perry at Department of Energy, General Mattis at, at Secretary of Defense. Lots of really good picks for for President Trump. This is all really good. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, all of these very solid picks. And if Donald Trump is just the guy who's going to be Donald Trump on TV and on Twitter, and you can sort of ignore that and the policy in the background gets made, 
then this could actually be a really successful presidency because he'll just go out and he'll say stuff and he has his thumb on, on sort of the pulse of how a lot of Americans are feeling. So he'll say things. And meanwhile, the policy that gets pursued is not made by Donald Trump. That's sort of best case scenario. And that's what was being argued by a lot of people in the latter days of the election. Elect, Mike, elect Donald Trump, get Mike Pence and Paul Ryan. That was sort of the argument. He's not going to be the one in charge. It'll be his deputies in charge. But we don't know that. Again, all of this is up in the air. So here's what we do know again. Donald Trump will be Trump. That means he's going to say politically incorrect things occasionally that are really good and valuable and piss off the media. It means he's going to attack the media when necessary. It means he's going to target his political enemies with alacrity. It also means he's going to attack the media when they don't deserve it and attack his political enemies when they don't deserve it. And he's going to say some stupid, really terrible things that are not politically incorrect. They're just him being an ass. It means that he's going to say these things and Kellyanne Conway is then going to pretend he never said these things. It means that he's going to slam companies to earn headlines. It means the stock market could bounce around based on the stuff that he says. It means our allies could be endangered. Right? There, there are a lot of things that could happen here that are bad because character matters in the president of the United States. And it also means a lot of Republicans may go along with things they don't agree with just because, hey, it's Trump. He won. Populism. Yay. Trumpism. Populism. Okay, Trump is going to remain Trump. His character is a constant. But we don't know what his governance will look like, right? It could be great. We could get a conservative Supreme Court. We could get cuts to regulation. We could get replacement, repeal of Obamacare, tax reductions. We could get a military rebuild. But all of that depends on how he's going to do this. Is he going to delegate to the people who know what they're talking about? Or is he going to be like little Jack Corner shoving his thumb in the pie every time he thinks something is mildly interesting? Is he going to shift his views as quickly as he did in all the years leading up to the election cycle on policy? Is he going to shift from big government to small government? Is he going to shift from anti-immigration to pro-immigration? Is he going to treat the White House as a family business, run it top down? Or is he actually going to treat it as just celebrity perks? You get to go on TV a lot and say things and feel important. And then the people who actually make policy are the people who work for him. Where is he going to put his public focus? Is it going to be on public fights or on policymaking? There's a really good case that we should all hope he continues to tweet about Saturday Night Live rather than trying to write the Obamacare replacement bill. Maybe we hope for all of that. But what happens if that's not it? What happens if Trump decides he's the person in charge because it turns out we elected him. He is the person in charge. Then we don't have any idea what's coming because his policies are all over the place. A lot of his political allies, like Newt Gingrich, they treat the fact that he has no governing philosophy as a sort of good thing. Well, look, he's not going to be bound to those, those hidebound, archaic philosophies like conservatism and the Constitution. He can do what he wants. He's a populist. But that's not good. That's disquieting. When you're making policy based on what you think is popular that day, all you end up with is a mishmash of crappy policy. Trump is not a small government advocate. We know that. He believes in big government doing big things, big infrastructure projects, building big things. A lot of that means blowing out the budget. Apparently, budget deficits don't matter anymore. He doesn't know much about the Constitution, and he doesn't appear to care all that much about the Constitution. Again, what does that mean for governance? And there is another problem, too, and that is this. Well, we can all hope for excellent policy, and I think we will get some excellent policy. I do. If I had to predict, I would say we get some really good policy, particularly, particularly in the early days. The public persona does matter. Trump is the face of the Republican Party, and Republicans have acquiesced in that. That means the stuff that Donald Trump says, that's going to have an impact on how people think and how they feel, even if it doesn't really shape policy. Barack Obama helped shape how Americans think and feel, even though he really didn't get a lot done politically in the last four years of his administration because he he helped polarize us along racial lines, along sexual lines, along gender lines. He helped polarize us along religious lines. And he did that using rhetoric, not really policy. Well, Trump now has the bully pulpit. What does that mean for the social fabric of the country? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So here's how I think we should approach this. And it's what I've been saying now for months, and it's not going to change when he's president of the United States. Okay, and that is this. 
We should allow ourselves to be optimistic, just as we should allow ourselves to be optimistic when anyone comes into office. But particularly now, if you're a Republican, you have a Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican president, you should be optimistic about the things that can get done. It's the greatest chance to make conservative policy in a generation. But we should remain skeptical. It is not our job, not my job, not your job to prop up Trump. There's an argument to be made during the election cycle. I didn't agree with it. That it was your job to lie for Trump or fib for Trump because it would help overcome Hillary. I always said, okay, if Trump wants me to support him, all he has to do is be good. Well, now that he's president, my rule has not changed. If he wants my support, all he has to do is govern well and act well. And that's not too much to ask. And what that means for us is when he is right, we ought to praise him as we've been doing on the program. And when he's wrong, we ought to criticize him. And it's not our job to assuage his feelings or try to convince him by patting him on the head that, that he, he'd be better off working with us. That's the job of Congress people. If they want to do that routine, that, that's what they can do. It's your job to speak the truth. It's my job to speak the truth. And if he has pathologies about he doesn't like criticism, so he reacts by going the other way, well, and that just demonstrates a lack of character on his part. And it demonstrates that Republicans need to find some new tactics for him. But it doesn't change what you should do or what I should do as somebody whose job it is to tell the truth about politics. He serves you. You do not serve him. He serves me. I do not serve him. He is not my boss. He is not my father. He's a public servant. He serves me and he serves you. And what that means is that he owes us his good governance. He owes us his improved character. He owes us his honor. That's what he owes us. He ran for this position. We elected him to this position. The American people did. And that means that now he owes us and he better pay his debts. You don't get to go bankrupt after you make a pledge to the American people. Trump may not have a governing philosophy, but we have to because it's our job to hold him accountable. Your job did not end November 7th. It didn't end that day. Your job is continuing. My job is continuing. So here is the real danger here. The real danger is the destruction of conservatism or truth or decency on the shoals of pure partisan hackery, defending bad, stupid things just because it's somebody in your party doing it. Don't be that guy. By the same token, if you're anti-Trump, if you're somebody who didn't vote for Trump, don't be the person who, because you're a hack, won't give him credit when he does something right. Things are true or things are false, no matter who does them. You don't get to look at Trump and declare a truth, a falsehood, just because you don't like Trump, and by the same token, you don't get to do the reverse. You don't get to declare that something is false, that is, is true, that is false, just because you like Trump. What you owe the American people, what you owe yourself, is honesty. What Donald Trump owes you is adherence to the Constitution and adherence to a set of political ideals that make the country better. That's what Donald Trump owes you, and that's what you should hold him to. Okay, time for some stuff I like, and time for some stuff I hate. So, Stuff I like. Uh, my uh, my personal trainer is a guy named Derek Gray. Uh, I train with him several times a week. Really, really nice guy. And he has kind of an amazing life story. Uh, his, his life story is that his father died before age 50. His brother died before age 50. His uncle died before age 50. His grandfather died before age 50. Every male in his family for two generations has died of a heart failure before age 50. And so he's written this memoir that is all about what it was like to grow up in a family where not only his father died, but also where there was this, this looming specter of death over him at all times. And it's, it's a good fitness book. It's a good workout book. It's a good book about, it's called When We Were Five. And, uh, and it's all about, it's, it's his story, obviously, but it's also a, a story about why it matters to be healthy because he actually changed his life structure. He was going to be a stockbroker and he went into personal training because he decided it was more important to live for his family than it was to make lots of money as a stockbroker. He just turned 50 a couple of years ago. He was the first male in his family to hit the age of 50. 
um, in, in, as I say, I think three generations. So that's, that's an amazing thing. And it's, it's a really interesting, funny, good book. Uh, Derek Gray's When We Were Five, you can check it out at Amazon.com. Okay, other things that I like. So I said the other day that uh, we had, I'd seen La La Land, and I mentioned that my dad is a tremendous jazz pianist. And I got some requests from people if we had any tape of him playing piano. So here's my dad. This is from like two, three nights ago, actually. Uh, here's my dad playing um, the, uh, the, the, the piano. Here is, here is, he's playing some jazz. He's 60 years old, and that's him playing. He was playing nightclubs when he was 14 years old. Uh, my dad is, is, he is, he really was. He's a, he's a world-class uh, jazz pianist. So that's what my dad's, uh, when I say my dad's good, I mean my dad's good. Okay, time for some stuff that I hate. Here we go. Oakley dokley. So, Lena Dunham has put out a tribute along with, I think, Jude Law and, and a couple of other celebrities. They put out this tribute to Planned Parenthood. It's this animated tribute to Planned Parenthood, and uh, it is quite awful. It's 100 years of Planned Parenthood, and we'll watch a little bit of it and then critique it. It all started with one woman. I nursed her back to health after a horribly botched abortion. She just barely survived. Her body poisoned, her fever spiking. Before leaving my care, she asked how to prevent more unintended pregnancies, and the doctor, male of course, told her... Oh, you can avoid your husband. Oh, matter of fact, you could have him sleep on the roof. Three months later, I got a frantic call from her husband. I arrived to find her beyond relief. She died that morning, leaving behind three little children. When I got home, I decided I wouldn't rest until I was able to give women the knowledge to control birth. A woman can't be free. A woman isn't free. No, it's not quite it, is it? No woman can call herself free who does not own and control her body. Those are the words I settled on. Margaret knew how to work the press. Okay, so this is all about Margaret time. Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. So if you actually look back at the history of Margaret Sanger, she, she thought that birth control should be specifically directed. First of all, she actually opposed abortion. If you go back and you look at what Margaret Sanger had to say about abortion, Margaret Sanger thought that abortion was a sin against man and God. She did. She actually opposed abortion. She was in favor of birth control because she thought that birth control would help avoid abortion. Right? She thought that birth control would actually prevent abortion. She didn't like abortion. 
She thought that abortion was a bad thing. So she wanted to, she, she favored birth control as opposed to abortion. Also, this, this Lena Dunham produced monstrosity. Uh, it ignores the fact that Margaret Sanger, again, did a lot of this because she wanted to help control the level of birth among the lower classes, which meant black people. And she, 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 she explicitly talked about this, Margaret Sanger did. There are a bunch of celebrities who participated in the making of this thing. It was J.J. Abrams, not to Jude Law, sorry. As Lena Dunham, America Ferreira, Mandy Kaling, Jennifer Lawrence, Gina Rodriguez, Amy Schumer, Meryl Streep, Constance Wu, the, among others. And they all appear in the credits. Uh, the video celebrates Roe v. Wade, which has led to over a, a million abortions in the United States, and a bunch of celebrity voices telling the stories of women who wrote to Sanger begging for help saying that they would rather die than become pregnant again. It just demonstrates where the priorities of the left lie, that their highest honor is reserved for a lady who is a racist and eugenicist uh, and somebody who actually even hated abortion, but they just ignore that altogether. Again, the left's priorities are really, really screwed up, and this is just another demonstration of that. Okay, other things that I hate today, uh, there is a headline from the Washington Post about David Glertner. They're talking about David Glertner being appointed to a scientific position in the, Obama, in, the, in the Trump administration as Trump's science advisor. Here's the headline. David Glertner, fiercely anti-intellectual computer scientist, is being eyed for Trump's science advisor. That's not an editorial. That's a report. Fiercely anti-intellectual computer scientist. Now, what would you imagine that would entail, to be fiercely anti-intellectual? Probably would mean you're like a high school grad and you, and you hate people who are highly educated. David Glertner is a professor at Yale University. He's a professor at Yale University. He's a pioneer in the field of parallel computation. Just terrible, just awful that he would be you know, brought into science circles. Just terrible. And, and they say that he's fiercely anti-intellectual. Why? Because he wrote a book about academia dismantling our culture and talks about intellectualism disintegrating patriotism. Okay, that's actually pro-intellectual because it is the faux-intellectuals have destroyed our culture and have destroyed any perception of intellectualism among, the, among the, the general public in the United States. But again, the media are wildly biased. Other things that I hate, uh, apparently 2017 is just uh, has killed 2016, as I saw somebody on Twitter say. 2017 has killed 2016 and is walking around wearing 2016, 2017's skin. Uh, and uh, Harambe's grandmother is dead. Tragedy strikes. The 49-year-old gorilla suffered a long-term health problem. Harambe's grandmother was euthanized at the Miami Zoo. So another tragedy strikes the Harambe family. And we can only, we can only pray that humanity survives the death of another member of the Harambe extended family because the indicators are not good, folks. I mean, if we're reading the chicken entrails or if we're reading the dead gorillas, then things are going to be rough this year, too. It, it, ever since Harambe's death, things have just been going downhill for the United States, and I hope this doesn't accelerate the trend. Okay, final thing that I hate, and then we'll get to the mailbag. Artists are all protesting. Uh, the way they've decided to protest, and you, you wonder why people feel out of touch with the artistic community, why maybe they're anti-intellectual in the mode of David Glartner, why they think maybe the intellectuals in society are so stupid and so terrible and we should never listen to them. Well, probably it's because there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of artists who are trying to resist Donald Trump's misogyny, this is according to the Huffington Post, with X-rated erotic art. The artists want you to take your hands off my country. But they spell that word differently, right? Because this is how they work. And they release art that's just ridiculous. Again, we've blurred out the more obscene parts of this, but um, it's President Obama performing certain acts. It's Donald Trump with um, male anatomy as his face. It's, uh, it's pictures of a woman apparently brushing another woman's private parts. I don't know what this is supposed to do to actually fight Trump exactly, 
like, especially the, this one in the middle, this na- this nude woman with the bars across her chest. I mean, like, his wife was a nude photo model. I don't know if that's supposed to, like, be a turnoff for him or what, but you wonder why there's sort of a gap between the artistic community and the general American public. Maybe it's because you think you're resisting Trump because you painted a picture of a woman pulling up her shirt and Boy Scout saluting it. Maybe it's because of that. Maybe that disconnect isn't helping your case at all. Okay, time for the mailbag. Let's do some mailbag. The final pre-inauguration mailbag. Next time we do the mailbag, gang, Donald Trump will be not president-elect. He will be the official president of the United States, which is just, wow. Woo. Okay, so here we go. Lucas writes, do you think race relations have a better chance of improving under President Trump than they do under President Obama? Why? P.S. Love the show. No. No, I don't. Uh, I, I think that Donald Trump is not likely, uh, I think he may reach out because he thinks that it's important to improve race relations, but I think President Obama has poisoned the well for a good period of time. It's going to take a while to recover from the well poisoning that Obama did. He's made a lot of people in in America believe that police forces are inherently racist. If Donald Trump defends the police, he'll be labeled racist. He's made a lot of people feel that white Americans are implicitly biased. If Donald Trump opposes that, he'll be seen as racist. Obama has done severe, significant, lasting damage beyond his own term. It's not Trump's fault that race relations are going to get worse uh, unless he exacerbates them, which he could. I mean, he's fully capable of being gauche in his own right, but it really is Obama's fault. No matter who took office, it was going to worsen race relations in the country because Obama had the greatest opportunity any American president has ever had to finally finish healing the racial divide in the United States, and instead he ripped it wide open for his own political gain. Evan writes, Hi, Ben. What is your opinion on the balance of power between the three branches of government currently? I think the executive and judicial branches have seriously overstepped their limits. What are some solutions you would propose? So, this is exactly right. The executive branch has wildly overstepped its limits because Congress has delegated enormous regulatory power to the executive branch. The judicial branch has usurped power from both the executive branch and the legislative branch. The most important branch is the legislative branch. It's why it's Article 1 of the Constitution, and all lawmaking power is vested in the legislative branch. Right now, a huge amount of lawmaking power is vested in the executive as well as the judiciary, which is quite terrible. The only way to restore that truly is to elect better people to Congress, people who are going to zealously guard their power. It would also help if we passed a constitutional amendment outlawing regulation from the executive branch. Like just get rid of the regulatory state altogether. That would probably take a constitutional amendment or, as I say, electing people in Congress to defund regulatory agencies. I was very disappointed today to see that Rick Perry, who once said he wanted to eliminate the Department of Energy, now says that he wants to keep it because he's the head of the Department of Energy. That's ridiculous. It should go. All of these extra departments need to, need to be destroyed. Uh, and uh, the regulatory power needs to be taken out of the hands of the executive branch altogether. If Congress wants to make a law, Congress should make a law, not unelected bureaucrats. Michael says, hey, Ben, what are your thoughts about faith-based drug rehab centers like Teen Challenge? I don't know about Teen Challenge, so I'm not going to speak specifically to that. But faith-based drug rehab centers, I have no problem with. Alcoholics Anonymous has been the most successful tool in helping alcoholics overcome their addiction for literally 100 years, and it is a faith-based system. Jordan says, with the Portugal experimenting of decriminalization, all drugs being moderately successful, is legalizing and regulating any or all drug sales a viable way to help combat the power and wealth of gangs in cities like Chicago? I'm not for using drugs just against the black market. So I'm pretty libertarian when it comes to drugs. There are certain drugs that cause externalities, like PCP makes people violent. That should be illegal. But if you're talking about drugs that you just take and it makes you high and you ruin your life, that's really your business as long as I'm not paying for it. The big problem with decriminalization of drugs is you have to ensure that the decriminalized price of drugs is below the street market price of drugs. So one of the problems we have in California is you decriminalize marijuana, but 
the price that you get at the marijuana dispensary is still higher than black market marijuana, so people still buy on the black market. You haven't destroyed the black market. You just created a, a black market that is uh, in competition with the real market. In order to, to really do this, it would work. Actually, decriminalization of drugs, there's a good case to be made that decriminalization of drugs would actually work better on the, on the level of, of harder core drugs that are more expensive rather than cheaper drugs. That, that would actually be the, the, the case, the strong case, the economic case for decriminalization. Mariel was writing live. She says, is socialism Bernie Sanders real socialism or is it an expanded social welfare state? So Bernie Sanders is what he calls a democratic socialist. He doesn't believe in state ownership of resources, but it's a really narrow gap. He, he basically believes that the government should heavily regulate every business and take an almost a near ownership stake in every business, regulate it up the wazoo, and then when the markets fail, should nationalize. So it's an incremental push towards socialism rather than an all-at-once push towards socialism. He thinks that we should just confiscate all private wealth, basically, and redistribute it more in the mold of Norway or Denmark. People like to cite Norway and Denmark as these vastly successful states. The fact is that Denmark has basically gone bankrupt because of its welfare state, and now they're having to cut back on their budget. Plus, the United States is not any of those countries. We're a far more diverse country racially, ethnically, uh, in terms of education level. And beyond that, the United States is a far more dynamic economy, of course, than anything that Europe has to offer, and more dynamic than Europe as a whole. Uh, and Paul says, hi, Ben. Happy belated birthday. I've been concerned about something from Trump's pressers last week in which fake news took center stage. He's claiming all foreign hotel revenue will be rolled into the U.S. Treasury to give money back to the people. How could this possibly work? Are we being funded by Trump Towers now? What tax implications would this incur? I have no idea how this would work, and, and I haven't seen a lot of, of details on how exactly this would work. Do they turn over all of their profits? Do they turn over all their financial records to the, to the federal treasury and then sign a check? Does that money just go back into the federal treasury? So does that mean effectively the government owns the hotels? Not really clear to me how this works exactly. Kyle says, hey, Ben, love the show. I have a question regarding life and referencing the Bible. Is it possible to know something without having knowledge of its antithesis, or would that be ignorance? For example, Adam and Eve only knew good and did not know evil until they ate from the tree of knowledge. Can someone know good without knowing evil? Yes, I think that someone can know good without knowing evil. Uh, I don't think that someone can know evil without knowing good. So it's so there are certain antitheses that you don't actually have to know. I can know that my marriage with my wife is great without having to know what an evil marriage looks like. I can I can know that that I love my child without knowing what it's like to hate my child. Right? But I don't know that you can know bad without knowing good. And this is why it's important that we, you educate your children to the good because then otherwise they're not going to know when they're doing something bad. Otherwise they're not going to know when they're doing something evil or unethical. Most people who do unethical things think they're doing ethical things. It's why you have to ground your children in a basic sense of values and ethics. Otherwise you end up with people who think they're doing ethical things when they're doing deeply unethical things. Uh, final question here. Uh, ben, swore, ben writes, who is your favorite and least favorite president in history and why? Uh, so my favorite president in history is still George Washington being the most powerful person in the country and being humble enough to give up that power after having come back, coming back and saving the country uh, during Shays' Rebellion, for example. It's, it's, uh, he's an amazing character. He's an amazing force in American, in, in American history uh, and underrated. He's so, he's so well-known that he's actually underrated, uh, George Washington is. Okay, I, I've been mandated to read this last one just because uh, sometimes we get hate mail and, and that's fun. So this one is from Curtis. And we'll shorten this because it's really long. He's very upset that I left my morning show in Los Angeles. And he says, this country was not built in 40-hour increments with every possible holiday off. Get to work, Shapiro. Okay, so we're getting to work. There will be a Friday show, I think, that we're adding uh, in the near future. We're also changing the time of the podcast next week. We're going to be doing it earlier in the day. Uh, so that is made possible by me leaving the morning show. Uh, and by the way, 
I work my ass off. I mean, I, <laughs> I do not work a 40-hour work week. I work much more like a 70-hour work week because I still run a website. I still write. I, I'm writing books. I'm writing pamphlets. There, there's a lot more to come, and there's more goodies that are coming for those of you who subscribe at Daily Wire. Make sure you do that right now. Go over to Daily Wire and subscribe if you're just listening so you can see it and become part of the mailbag and join us. And if not, keep listening on iTunes and SoundCloud. And we will be back next week when Donald Trump is officially President of the United States. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.